Let me begin this evening by thanking Jeff for assisting with the computer a moment ago. His expertise certainly much more quickly led to a solution than mine ever could have. I'm always thankful for those that have expertise and such noteworthy skills in those areas that can benefit others so, so very much. This congregation, I suppose, has somewhat a name or consideration for that. Last Wednesday evening, as you might recall, we enjoyed a wonderful time of singing, an opportunity to lift our voices together in song, and 14 different gentlemen led us in singing over the course of that 50 minutes or so. And if you pause and think about the number of our congregation and the number of those gentlemen present, you'd perhaps be remarked and somewhat astoundingly at the percentage of those that led us in singing. It does state about the willingness of the men here, the eagerness that they do share, and in fact, the enjoyment that they have of, of using their abilities in a way to assist all of us in worship. Brother Lester mentioned those on our sick list, and we continue to, of course, keep so many in mind. If you haven't picked up a bulletin, please, please do that as you exit the auditorium. And keep in prayer those, those that uh, are mentioned there in that place. The Jordan River is a particular set of studies that we began last Sunday evening. And on that occasion, as we looked at some of the features of the Jordan River, at that time at least, we really cast a spotlight on three major elements from the Old Testament. We saw the unique geography surrounding that most famous of all rivers on earth. Although that river is by far not the longest, by far not the greatest water volume, and by far, in fact, none of the other major features that one might think would make it famous, we did find that likely... All of those that have any interest in things biblical would race in their mind to the Jordan River. We did learn on two occasions in the Old Testament that it was parted. We saw in Joshua chapter 3 that magnificent occurrence when the children of Israel led by Joshua as the priests stood there in the waters and it parted by the power of God and the children of Israel crossed over on dry land. As all of that happened, of course, we were led to appreciate that it actually took place during that season when the river had overflown and that made it even more amazing that God in fact stopped it and the people of God passed over safely. We did see also in 2 Kings 2 another instance there when one more time the waters of the old Jordan River were parted. This time it was under the leadership of Elijah and following that Elisha. As the mantle of Elijah touched that water and parted it, reminding even the people of that day where the power of God rested and how that it was even to be seen in the work and life of the prophets. But it was with that observation that that lesson concluded. And I, in fact, stated that we'd turn to the New Testament as we'd come to the second installment in this series. I'd invite you this evening to look with me at two episodes in fact, in some ways they are related, but nonetheless the Holy Word of God has applied them to us and put them in somewhat distinguished places. It is with that in mind I would invite us to look at the New Testament occurrences of the Jordan River. And in fact, as we perhaps think about those occurrences, one will in fact take the spotlight. In case you might be wondering, I am expecting the series to close next Sunday evening. And on that occasion, we will look at yet one other occurrence found much later in the New Testament as it relates to the Jordan River. So if at all you can, keep that in mind and I'll make plans to be back with us as we study another episode in the occurrence of the Jordan River on that occasion. John the Baptist will occupy the first portion of the lesson this evening. Uh, 
He was a powerful New Testament figure, wasn't he? I say it in that way because he was a gentleman who would have captured any of our attentions if we had but merely met him. After all, he ate locusts and wild honey. After all, he was an outdoors man. He lived out in the wilderness area of Judea. In fact, even his clothing was not the fashion statement of the day, nor certainly would it be today. John was a very rugged individual. However, his mind was attuned to the frequency of God, and from that it never veered. He preached powerfully, majestically, and mightily, and did so no matter who the audience may have been. On one occasion in Matthew, the 14th chapter, his urgings relative to the Word of God were so stringent and so powerful that in fact it ultimately cost him his life. You see, when he preached on the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, a subject that wasn't popular then and isn't popular today, nonetheless, the circumstances surrounding the nature of it ultimately would be such that his head was asked for on a charger, and that ultimately, in fact, was brought to reality. But John the Baptist, he obviously labored much in the Jordan Valley, and he obviously had much to do with the success of that which would be the law of Christ. As you and I come then to the discussion of John the Baptist, I might, in fact, ask us to give thought to some of these things. As often as the Old Testament had spoken about and foretold the coming of Jesus, and in fact had pinpointed by way of over 300 prophecies a number of the features about the life and times of the Messiah, it might be easy to overlook the fact that the Old Testament had also foretold the work of John the Immerser. He also was to be one that would be a voice crying in the wilderness. He was to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Two passages in particular that very carefully speak about his labor and his effort. In Isaiah, the 40th chapter, the first eight verses or so of that chapter detail for us the nature of the voice crying in the wilderness, a passage that's quoted verbatim in Mark chapter 1 and applied to John the Baptist. As you think about the understandings of that passage, isn't it interesting that that text was written roughly 750 years prior to the birth of Jesus, that means three-quarters of a millennium earlier, the efforts and the work and the labor of John the Baptist had been foretold. John the Baptist didn't just, did not just appear accidentally. He didn't just happen to appear slightly before Jesus. He was a part of the great work of what would lead to the success of the Lord's ministry. Another passage in Malachi chapter 3, the final book in the Old Testament, we have here again a book written only about 420 to 30 years prior to the birth of Jesus. And yet we find in the character of the first three verses of Malachi chapter 3, the understanding that suddenly the Lord was come to His temple when this work of Elijah, John the Baptist in essence, would take place. Isn't it amazing then to appreciate that when we turn the page from Malachi over to Matthew, and we find that suddenly mention is made almost immediately in the first chapter of, for instance, Mark, early in the book of Luke, and also in Matthew, the statement and the reality of John the Baptist. It is for that reason I would ask you to notice that some of these things directly come before us. He is called Elijah. I say that because that's the description the Lord applied to him. 
It's not to think that this was a reincarnated Elijah. Rather, his work and his labor was so similar to that in fact they might be said to be parallel. In fact, wasn't it true in the days of Elijah that here was a stalwart messenger of the things of God? The princes and the powers and the government opposed Elijah. We remember Ahab and Jezebel, those who brought idolatrous worship, the worship of Baal by and large into the people of God, and not only brought it in but encouraged it. They set up groves in various places of idol worship throughout the land. Of course, Jezebel had been the daughter of foreign kings for whom that kind of worship was what was accustomed to her. Ahab in his weakness allowed her to bring that into Israel and make that the so-called state religion. Much, of course, to the dismay of the children of, that would be, have an interest in doing the things of God. In sadness, though, we appreciate that Elijah remained faithful. He opposed Ahab as well as Jezebel. He even, in fact, foretold how they would meet their deaths. And they died exactly as Elijah had said they would. Might we notice in John chapter 1, there is a statement about John the Baptist also from his lips that reminds us about the greatness of his effort. In John 1 verse 29, on this occasion when, of course, the Master had already come, but John's work was still in its ascendancy. He said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John directed the attention of those that were his own disciples to, in fact, there's one greater than I. He must increase and I must decrease, John 3 verse 30. Jesus, speaking of John, said that he was a bright and shining light, John 5 verse 35. John, you see, had a tremendous work and role to play. And I would ask you to notice just a few of the ways he carried that out. In Matthew chapter number 3, a moment ago, the later verses of that chapter were read for us by Brother Cale. Early in that chapter, though, we notice, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight." And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leather girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan. Fascinating then to imagine the character of this John. I realize that the life and time some 20 centuries ago may be perceived as different than today. But keep in mind, even for that era... John was a very different person, wasn't he? He lived out in the distances, not in the city. He lived out in the wilderness region. Did you note verse 1? He abided, he abode in that location and place. It is for that reason I would ask you to think about his preaching and the place in which it took place. Verse 1 said, in the wilderness of Judea. John wasn't a city dweller. He didn't find his abode there in Capernaum or in Jerusalem or, yea, in either of the lesser-known cities such as Scythopolis. Here was a man who literally lived out in the wilderness. Now that word wilderness by and large means a deserted area. 
although it's not what you and I would think of as a Sahara desert or maybe other deserts of the world today, it was simply a place that was more desolate. And yet this is where John was. As he preached in that area, you'll notice that he also baptized here in the Jordan River. I've simply stated that like this. You'll notice that we've stated earlier last Sunday evening that that Jordan in the Old Testament appeared a number of times. It was parted. It, in fact, was highlighted a number of times as work of God had taken place in its midst. But you'll notice here that with the baptism of John in that Jordan River, those waters hadn't been stirred for a reason as noteworthy and as powerful as this in well over a half a millennium. It is with that in mind. We notice that John baptized here. Now, when you and I think about the kind of activities that were done in that day and time, baptism was not what you would say would be a commonly occurring activity. After all, in the kinds of idol worship and the other kinds of false religion, although sacrifices and although other kinds of things were somewhat common, baptism was not. It's not as if one just saw baptisms occurring all the time. Yet here was a man laboring out in the distant rural areas, and he was baptizing. Word of what John was doing spread like a prairie grass fire. Folks seemed to take an interest in it. Would you notice with me again verse number 5? Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan. Let's put some of those thoughts together. Last Sunday evening when we discussed the parting of the Jordan, that is to say where that took place in the days of Joshua, Joshua chapter 3, and where it took place in the days of Elisha as well as Elijah in 2 Kings 2, we learned that that took place in a stretch of the Jordan River roughly 8 to 10 miles just upstream from the Dead Sea. That was that region recognized for where the children of Israel crossed the Jordan, and that's also where those events of 2 Kings took place. You'll notice here the wilderness of Judea is the phrase used in verse 1 of Matthew 3. That phrase is used to describe that same region of the Jordan River. And so much to our delight we find that the event taking place here, the baptism which John was in fact participating in and which he was teaching and preaching, it was taking place in the same region in which the Jordan River had been parted centuries earlier. That thought perhaps leads us to comment on some of these things. This region just upstream of the Dead Sea, it is a region identified with some of the names that you'll notice at the bottom. What a great compliment to the preaching of John. Here was a man preaching out in these deserted or abandoned areas, and yet people were coming to him in droves, multitudes coming to hear him coming to witness these baptisms. Today, isn't it amazing that you and I send preachers to various places hoping to garner crowds? John didn't have to go out. They came to him. That's a statement of the great preaching, isn't it? And that's a statement of just how popular and the great work that God was accomplishing through him. People were coming to him in masses to hear, to listen, and to watch. Jesus on one occasion had said in Matthew 11, verse 11, 
as he made these statements about John the Baptist, listen to the thoroughness and to the greatness with which the Lord described this powerful preacher. Among those born of women, there hath not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. Yet he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. There can be no mistaking from that statement how great an individual, how great an influence and impact John the Baptist had had. It is for that reason I would invite you to notice a bit more of the details about his baptism, this baptism that he practiced. John gives us these details in John 3 verse 23, that John, in fact, was preaching and baptizing in the area of Enon, A-E-N-O-N, which is near Salem, which of course is a reference to Jerusalem. But we've already noted the people from Jerusalem were coming out to John and they were listening to his preaching. And they also, of course, were taking part in that baptism. Many were baptized by John. You'll notice that leads us to highlight these. One might ask, why did John select this part of the Jordan River to practice baptism? Why was he not upstream perhaps more carefully? Thankfully, the Holy Spirit has provided us a detail. Why was John here working in this area near Anion? It says because there was much water there. We find this was a region where the Jordan River had sufficient opportunity and depth such that baptism could be accomplished. That does, of course, lead us to note these. This baptism that John was involved in, this baptism that was a part of his ministry, was a baptism that had a number of things in accordance to it. I've listed them for your consideration. One of them, the statement of Mark 1 verse 4. It involved repentance, didn't it? John, it carefully says, preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. We find thus part of what John preached and part of that baptism which he in fact taught and administered led him to preach on the subject of repentance. Later we find even in fact in both Luke and John references were made to where individuals understood that preaching and in fact they questioned John about it. Some who had taken advantage of others asked him, what should we do? He said, you go and make it right. You restore fourfold unto those for whom you've taken. Isn't it interesting in light of all of that that the matter of repentance was even an element involved in what John preached. But not only repentance, you'll notice, Matthew 3, 6 says that those individuals confess their sins. We find that confession also had a part in that which John preached. All of that perhaps leads us to revisit then that subject of baptism per se. John baptized where there was much water. It wasn't pouring, nor was it sprinkling, nor was it, nor was it any other usage of that water. It was that which the New Testament describes as baptism. Baptizo in the original language, transliterated simply as baptize. Baptism invariably describes an activity that involves much water. So much so that it's described as a burial in Romans 6 verses 3 and 4. On that occasion when Paul in fact challenged and charged the Roman brethren, he asked this question. He said, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, 
that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And there we find that the inspired apostle, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, asserted that baptism is a burial. That's an easy thing to appreciate, isn't it? We understand what it means to bury. It means to completely submerge beneath, to cover entirely, and that's the only means whereby the New Testament identifies and describes this which you and I recognize as baptism. As you give thought to that idea, that leads us then to ask a few more questions about this baptism which John administered. Did God anticipate or did He expect those of that day to submit to John's baptism? It would appear from Luke 7, 29 that He did. In other words, God expected those who heard the preaching of John, those who were the subjects of that baptism, to in fact be baptized. It appeared not to be an optional matter. It appeared not to be something that could be taken or left. It appeared to be something, again, that God expected them to understand the thoroughness and power and nature of the lessons that John preached and to respond appropriately. It is for that reason I would ask you to look at the next set of ideas. This baptism that John administered is one that's mentioned a few times in the New Testament. It was not to have a lasting influence. That is to say, it was not to remain perpetually in force. Rather, it was only of limited character. We appreciate really that the New Testament mentions six different baptisms. Six of them. In fact, you probably can think of what many of them are with me. There was mention made in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4, about the baptism of Moses and the Israelites, both in the cloud and the sea. We understand that it had reference to the completeness and dedication of their following of the teaching of God through His servant Moses. But we also notice that there was... The baptism mentioned, of course, the one we're studying tonight. The baptism administered by John the Baptist. We also notice four additional ones. There was that baptism of fire mentioned in Matthew chapter 3. There's still much discussion today about what is the baptism of fire? When will it come and who will be the subjects of it? In that same verse, mention is made of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Legions have been the misunderstandings relative to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In fact, there are those today who pray that they might be baptized in the Holy Spirit. They simply know not what they ask. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, according to the book of Acts, was reserved for those initial twelve followers of the Master. Those, of course, described on that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and reiterated later in identified measure in Acts the 10th chapter. As you think about those baptisms, notice there are two more. In Luke chapter 12, the Lord made mention there of the baptism of suffering. Of course, we appreciate that indeed there was much suffering for those early saints. Often their lives were demanded of them and they often gave them. That leaves but one more, baptism number six. And we each know exactly which one that one is. It's the one mentioned in Acts 2 verse 38. It's the one mentioned in that passage in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, the one highlighted in Colossians 2.12, as well as the one that saves us in the language of 1 Peter 3.21. Those six baptisms lead us to note this. 
In Ephesians 4 verse 5, Paul said that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Although there were six, as mentioned in certain places in the sacred scriptures, there is but one with the power to lead one to salvation. There is but one with the methodology and means whereby sins can be forgiven. There is but one, then, that is the one spoken of that leads us to eternal life. Thanks be unto God that we need not be concerned about the baptism of John the Baptist as far as occurring in power today. That baptism of fire, that baptism of the Holy Spirit, all are worthwhile subjects for study, but they won't save any of us. Might we say in light of all of that, that comes to the bottom and note the language of Acts 19. Paul in his preaching effort came to a location, found 12 men who had been baptized under the ministry of John. They had been baptized with the baptism of John the Immerser. But Paul was concerned and bothered by them because he asked them about their reception of the Holy Spirit. And they said, we haven't even heard if there be a Holy Spirit. That in fact gave Paul the exact information. Well, what then were you baptized unto? He knew something was amiss with their baptism. And after teaching and preaching and proclaiming the truth, they were baptized under the baptism of Jesus Christ. Today, you see, that baptism of John the Baptist has passed away into the oblivion of history. That was for that day and time, and today it is thus not a baptism that we should practice. It again makes an interesting study, and that's the purpose of our time this evening. When you think about all of that, maybe that brings us to the closing part of that slide and suggests to us another. This baptism that we've studied brings us to the most famous individual who submitted in that day to it, Jesus the Christ. Later on in Matthew chapter 3 is the very passage that Cale read earlier for us. Amongst all the individuals that did come for baptism, one of them was Jesus Himself. Let's then devote an additional study tonight to the nature of the Lord's baptism. What is it that took place when Jesus Himself submitted to be baptized? May we begin with these comments. The amazing character of John's preaching and the nature of this Jesus coming to him. It is with that in mind again that these words that close Matthew, Matthew chapter 3 certainly ring before us. Perhaps you and I can imagine it happened in such an overwhelming fashion. Here were throngs of people gathered of John to be baptized multitudes of people from Jerusalem and the area that had come, and yet through the crowd comes walking Jesus. John recognized Him immediately. John knew exactly who He was. John was thoroughly acquainted with the greatness of the One. And in fact, as we cast the spotlight on some of the things that John said, might they not put us to appreciate this? Jesus, you remember... It says in verse 13, came to be baptized. He came to Himself be baptized in that Jordan River. Verse 14 says, John forbade Him. That word forbade means to hinder. It means to dissuade. It means to prevent. John at first was hesitant. He was reluctant to do so because he knew in the very question he asked, I have need to be baptized of thee. And comest thou to me? John was well acquainted with the greatness of the Lord. 
that greatness is seen in some of those verses that we noted earlier in the lesson this evening. Of those born of women, not any greater than John the Baptist, but the one least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That burning and shining light of John 5, 35. Didn't in fact John say, He must increase and I must decrease? I'm not worthy to stoop down and unloose the latchet of his shoes. John understood he was merely the messenger. He was not the Messiah. He understood his prestige of being the forerunner to the Christ, the voice crying in the wilderness, but he knew that he was not the Son of God. It is because of all of that that these thoughts come before us. John understood the Lamb of God was here. The Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. John is to be so highly commended, perhaps in jealousy and in pride, many might have been tempted, why not follow me? Why not in fact be my disciple and my, the one who would be my dis, uh, follower? But yet... John was so very quick to direct the attention to Jesus. And even when his disciples would proceed to follow Jesus, John didn't seek to stop them. He didn't seek to retain their services. He was happy, in fact, to encourage them to ever seek to pursue the one who was the Lamb of God. That Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That Lamb of God, the one who was the centerpiece of John's preaching and his message is the same one that we find described in the following ways. When the Lord came to be baptized by John, verse number 15, Jesus then replies to John's initial hesitancy. Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now. Jesus in essence said, In light of John your reluctance and in light of this hindrance, allow it to be so. Please fulfill this. And then he explained it like this. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. It becometh us. Baptism was something Jesus couldn't do by himself. As great as he was, baptism requires at least another individual, doesn't it? And so it was here that Jesus came to be baptized by John. Did you notice he said, it becometh us. That word becometh is a verb that highlights the accomplishment of something. In other words, what we are to do is not yet accomplished, but upon the fulfillment of it, it will complete in entirety that which would be becoming. And then he says, verse number 15, to fulfill all righteousness. That word fulfill means to feel full. It means, again, to complete, having behind it the idea of completion. What was taking place, Jesus said, would fulfill all righteousness. That word righteousness, again, means that which is right, that which has within it the approval and satisfaction of the God of heaven. It's that, again, which He has authorized and that which He has put in place. In Psalm 119, verse 172, the inspired psalmist there said that all thy commandments, God's commandments, are righteousness. And thus here we find that again, this was something that was an important element in work for that day. John's baptism was serious. It wasn't to be looked on optionally or lightheartedly. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. At that point, verse number 15 closes by saying, Then he suffered him. 
What a magnificent thing it must have been to dip Jesus beneath that water, knowing He was the Son of God, knowing that He was going to give His life a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. Knowing, in fact, that you yourself would be cleansed by His blood and yet you have the privilege of baptizing Him. And yet that's what happened that day in the Jordan River when Jesus came to be baptized by John. As you can see further on that slide, we notice that some amazing things happened. Verse number 17, And Jesus, when He was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. These two had gone into the water, and now the Lord comes out of it. That's what baptism demands, isn't it? A going into the water, Acts 8, 37 and 38, and then a coming out of it. And then it says, The heavens were opened unto Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon Him. Again, think about how special it would have been to be in the audience perhaps that day and watch John baptize Jesus and then to witness the things that we are about to see. Verse 16 says, The heavens were opened unto Him. Here, the Lord had arrived at that point in His life. His public ministry was shortly to begin in earnest. And we find that the greatness and the nature of all these things remind us that the heavens were opened unto Him. Maybe we can see in part a scenario like that in Revelation 4. When there, of course, the one sitting on the throne had in his right hand a book sealed seven times, and thankfully the Son was found worthy to take the book out of his hand and loose the seals and reveal the contents. And then we notice in verse 16, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. John would tell us in John chapter 3 that Jesus received the Spirit without measure. That is to say, He being the Son of God had access to all power and majesty. He received the Spirit without limitation, without measure. We notice here that Spirit descending in the form of a dove and lighting upon Him. And then verse number 17 says, A voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is one of those amazing scenes in which all three members of the Godhead are mentioned in such close proximity. Jesus, the Son, had just been baptized. The Spirit of God descending in the form of a dove. And God the Father echoing powerfully from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. May we pause for a moment and say, not since the days of Mount Sinai, as far as we know, had the heavens thundered like it did on this occasion. On that occasion, when God spoke those Ten Commandments, we remember how the people responded in such quaking fear because they, had, in fact, besought Moses, You speak to us and not God, for if God speaks to us, we shall die. Here one more time the heavens thundered in great approval of Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What, the, what Jesus and John had there accomplished was pleasing unto God. Baptism was looked upon favorably. It was not looked upon as something to be avoided, something to controversial find, controversially find loopholes around. It was looked upon as a pleasing thing unto God. It is with that in mind that we'll come to the last element of the lesson tonight and then conclude it. All of these attributes of the Jordan River that we've studied this evening perhaps beg us to think in passing 
about the occurrence and the relationship that they might bear with us today. First of all, as we've noted more than once, this baptism of John the Baptist was not a show. It was not an outward expression. It was not merely some trivial occurrence that one could laugh off as insignificant. This was an earth-shattering event. The baptism of John, and especially in as much as Jesus was baptized. But today, what an overshadowing event is our baptism. It is so special to witness an individual turn his or her life over to Jesus who died for them. It is an event, in fact, that will have meaning throughout the remainder of this life and all of eternity. Literally, things will never be the same again for that person. Baptism is that special. But not only that, we've already learned that the baptism of which we read in terms of John, it was not a sprinkling and it was not a pouring, nor was it any other kind of figurative baptism. It was a literal immersion in the Jordan River. Today, baptism is still an immersion. Thankfully, it need not be the Jordan River, but it's any water whereby immersion can take place. Thirdly, we notice the baptism spoken of in Matthew 3.15 was involved righteousness. It involved what was right. Today, the same thing is true. Baptism is what is right. When an individual reaches that stage in life in which he or she recognizes, I am a sinner and Christ died for me, and they understand the plan of salvation, they are then in a position to eagerly wish to be baptized. Is it any wonder that eunuch in Acts chapter 8 said, Here is water, what does hinder me to be baptized? He responded to the preacher even before the invitation was extended. Isn't that interesting? Baptism was so urgent and so important that he didn't want to wait any longer. In the next place, you'll notice the approval from heaven was so powerfully shouted. This is my beloved Son. Today, don't you and I know that heaven looks so favorably upon a person who is baptized scripturally? In Acts 2 verse 47, the Lord adds them to the church. Is that not a statement of heaven's approval? And a statement of how sins being washed away are of such delight? There is one great difference though. You'll notice that Jesus didn't confess any sins at the time of His baptism. You see, there's good reason for that. He didn't have any sins to confess. He was perfect. His baptism was a powerful example of submission unto the way of God. And may you and I understand that baptism is still a submission unto the way of God. Colossians 2 verses 11 and 12. This very night, as we draw this lesson to its conclusion, we've learned the Jordan River occupied such a central role both in the Old and New Testament. Next week, as we'll study that lesson as well, we find that Jordan River will occupy a very critical part even in your thinking and mind, though we live thousands of miles today from the Jordan River. This very evening, what about your life though and mine? If you've never been baptized, why not in fact attend to that need this evening? The plan of salvation is stated so simply. You're commanded to believe, to repent, to confess, and of course to be baptized. If you have not attended to that, let this evening be the evening, if you have, but you've wandered astray from the fold of faithfulness. That baptism perhaps is a distant memory and it no longer holds meaning for you. The day of your baptism should be arguably 
the single most important day of your entire life. That's the day you put on your Lord in baptism. That's the day your name was put in the book of life. That's the day you began to make ready for eternity. If that day has lost its meaning for you, why not, in fact, beseech the prayers of brethren for, in fact, your forgiveness and beseech God, of course, for the same. And if we could, in fact, help in any way tonight, we'd be honored to do that. Brother Adam has chosen a song of encouragement, and if we could be of help to you, won't you let that be known, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.